Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. This chapter is called Balabhaga. I've changed the subtitle because I didn't like it anymore. It used to be of Fools and Foolishness. And really, I've changed it to um, Wisdom and Foolishness. And this, um, this chapter um, makes a clear distinction between fools and those developing wisdom. But what it's not talking about is people in general, um, meaning that it's just denigrating people that don't practice the Dhamma as fools. The reference to fools and foolishness is people that uh, think that they're practicing the Dhamma, but do so in a way that isn't pure practice. It, it's more that their practice is based in who they're associating with, uh, putting on the robes of a Dhamma practitioner without actually practicing. So that's the distinction between fools and foolishness. Um, there's probably no more... Uh, relevant chapter to my own life than this one, and I'll explain as I go along. Balabhaga, wisdom and foolishness. The night is long for the sleepless, the road long for the weary. Suffering and ignorance is long for ignoring the Dhamma. A true seeker should be resolute in their solitary path if an equal or wiser companion cannot be found. There can be no true fellowship with the foolish. So um, for many years, I practiced uh, in many of the modern Buddhist schools because I never found one that was right for me. And I, I met a lot of wonderful people. And uh, I was never one who was uh, shy about introducing myself to people that might seem I don't know that you should that they're above you or something, but so I, I had no trouble meeting uh, the teachers of these different and the leaders of these different lineages. Um, but my association was with the people that were there, and because I was forming friendships and strong associations with these different groups. I didn't want to see that I wasn't really practicing something that was bringing a benefit to me, even though um, I was getting ever more confused and ever more frustrated the longer um, I was involved in modern Buddhism. But what I didn't realize was that this is a solitary path that we all practice. We come together as a Sangha, but those of us that are practicing the Dhamma understand that it's a solitary path, meaning we have to do it ourselves. There's, there's nothing given to us. There's nothing... Um, uh, there's nothing bestowed on us just because we have an intention to be a Buddhist or to practice the Buddhist Dhamma. We have to actually practice. But what the Buddha was pointing out is that even during his time with the Buddha sitting in front of you, there were people that just wanted to associate themselves rather than actually practice I'm going to read that again. A true seeker should be resolute in their solitary path if an equal or wiser con companion cannot be found. So for many years after I came across the Buddha's teachings and realized what they were and started doing some uh, restoration work to the suttas, 
um, I, I could not find any wise associations. And so I continued my solitary uh, path of practice because of what the Buddha, I didn't, I didn't realize this yet. I didn't, I didn't come to the Dhammapada. But I also understood that there was no sense in me joining other groups, even meditation groups, if they weren't practicing what I thought was going to be a benefit to me. So I stayed uh, within this nice solitary practice that was, I mean, it was working for me. Um, and it wasn't until Tamara, the acupuncturist who had the building next door, asked me to uh, lead a meditation class to raise money for charity that I started actually looking at the practice in terms of what am I presenting to others. And that, um, that was an auspicious time for me because it really got me into looking at the suttas, not so much as how do I practice it, but how do I present it? And that the teachers here will know that's a different thing than just your own practice. You have to consider different things. And <clears throat> what's the best way to do this? And how can I be most skillful in presenting the Dhamma? And that was the beginning of wisdom because now I knew what I was practicing and I had the opportunity to share it with others, even though everyone that's here, I think would agree that we have a solitary practice and we bring it together in our sangha. The Buddha continues, the fool, the fool worries distracted. I have sons, I have wealth, not knowing heartwood. Meaning you, you become fixated on the things that you've achieved and you want those things to be permanent. Your sons, you don't, you know, you don't want anything ever bad to happen to your children, even though bad things can happen. And you don't want to lose wealth, even though kings and robbers can take your wealth, governments can take your wealth, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When you're clinging to that, there's always going to be stress. And if you're clinging to that, it's because of eye making. You've identified yourself with it, and you've created an identity over these things that you've acquired. The fool who thinks themselves wise is foolish indeed. So you can't be taught if you think you know everything, even if you don't know anything, right? And even when you come to the Dhamma, uh, the people who have the, the most difficulty in developing what we teach here are those that haven't been practicing in modern Buddhism for many years, because it's so hard to let go of that conditioned thinking. Uh, and even years after I was practicing this and doing jhana meditation, every now and then my old mantra from TM would just pop into my head. And I was just so conditioned to doing that. It wasn't like I wanted to practice it, but I'd find myself in jhana meditation and then distracted by my mantra, which is hrim, 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 saying over and over again, wait a minute, what am I doing? But that's just conditioned thinking. The fool who knows their foolishness has the beginning of wisdom. So when I finally came across what the Buddha actually taught, I knew that what I was practicing before wasn't it. And now I had gained something. I was beginning to develop true wisdom. And I was ending my own foolishness that kept me chasing all over the globe and spending thousands and thousands, probably tens of thousands of dollars trying to gain something that doesn't cost anything. But I thought it did. I thought I had to pay for it. Just as this line says, just as a, yeah, just as a spoon cannot taste soup the fool cannot gain wisdom through association with the wise. And again, that thing that as long as I can get become part of a group, I'm good to go. You know, that, that tribal belief that, that human beings so love. Just as, as the tongue tastes the flavor of the soup, those discerning wisely quickly learn the heartwood through wise associations. That, was, that, that is what we've established here. We, we've created a sangha 
that other people can wisely associate with it because we're practicing something that will bring benefit. Witless fools harm themselves and others. The fruits of their, of their deeds are always bitter. The fool's unskillful acts are as a fruit that ripens in tears. Metaphor. The wise one's skillful acts are as a fruit that ripens in peace and happiness. The fool whose deeds have yet to ripen delights, yet when ripened, the fool always grieves. What is he referring to? Grasping after something. I want to get something. And then once we get it, it's, no, it's, not, it's not enough. We want more. That fruit ripened and now it's gone. I used to, when I was first started making a lot of money, I figured that what I should do was to buy a new car every year because I deserved it and I was making money. And the second year, I, I remember still remember the car. I bought this beautiful Cutlass Sierra, which was at the time was a really hot car. It ended up being a piece of junk, but uh, I still remember. I still remember I bought it in Summit, New Jersey. I remember driving out of the garage, hitting the street, and my first thought was, I just lost twenty percent. So here I am driving this brand new car, but I couldn't even enjoy it because I lost twenty percent driving off the lot, and that was the last new car I bought for a long time. Wandering endlessly in ignorance, tasting, taking sustenance with a blade of grass, the fool never gains a speck of truth, a, a speck of truth of the wise. Foolish acts ripen slowly like sour milk, but, but cling to the fool like a smoldering ash. Remember, this was written 2,600 years ago, restored by me. But The fool gains knowledge that only leads to ruin by obscuring reality and their own innate potential, our own innate potential. We hide our own, our own potential, our own real human goodness from ourselves because of acquisition, of, of trying to keep padding more and more onto this eye-making. And we never see what's really here. You know, you've heard me say it often that um, human beings are basically good and honest and loving people even though most many people don't act that way. But it's only true psychopaths that aren't actually able to access that true goodness and true psychopathy is very rare. But we miss it. You know, I, I know that there were years and years um, that I did things that, I mean, they weren't terrible, they weren't egregious crimes, but I was doing things that inadvertently and sometimes maybe advertently, <laughs> intently, hurt people. And it always bothered me. I'm like, why, why do I do this? I didn't want to act that way, but it was the only way I could act and protect my ego. And that's what the ego does to us. It makes us act in ways that aren't in our own best interests. But once we get going down that path, it's very hard to turn it around unless you can develop first concentration and then a framework. That's why the Buddha gave us an eightfold path to, to see what we're actually doing, not, to, not out there, but to ourselves. This first concentration. Pardon me? First concentration. What is it? What, what is it? Oh, oh at first, yeah. At, we, at first, we develop concentration. Oh, oh, oh. And that supports the rest of the Eightfold Path. But a good question. That's why it's there. So, jhana meditation's sole purpose is to deepen concentration. It's not so much to have an effect that we feel better at the end of 20 minutes or 30 minutes, whatever it is. It really doesn't matter how we feel at the end of our meditation. In fact, if we're putting an emphasis on how I feel at the end, you're probably missing something in your technique. 
because all that we're doing in jhana meditation is recognizing when we're distracted by feelings or thoughts or a thought attached to a feeling and come back to the sensation of breathing. And sometimes after 20 minutes or 30 minutes or five minutes, that resolves in a calm and peaceful feeling. That's fine. But that's not the goal. So every time we're doing jhana meditation, no matter how you feel after it, if you're engaging in the technique, if you're using the method correctly, you're deepening your concentration. And that's the only thing that really should be considered. But John, we always talk about how it's paired with equanimity. Right? That's the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is understanding and this this and not taking the present quality of mind personally. Mm. So as we deepen our concentration and are able to incorporate the eightfold path that ultimately resolves in uh, continuing right view, mm. our minds do rest in equanimity. Mm. But that's a result of, of a complete Dhamma practice rather than just meditation. Yeah. And it's not, again, it, it's, if, you, if you feel good after your meditation session, that's okay. I'm not saying you shouldn't. But, if, but that shouldn't be your goal. It should be um, a, a side effect of your meditation rather yeah. than rather than the goal but, it, but it's hard not to get attached to that it is it is but every time i'm done with the meditation session i feel miserable but <laughs> <laughs> it, it yeah it, we, we can lose and it, it, it's common in in fact meditation especially when you hear meditation attached <laughs> to the word mindfulness like mindfulness meditation there is the, the whole point of that is is the goal of feeling better of relaxation and that's fine if that's what you want to do it's just not dhamma practice that's all that's kind of synonymous with what we talked about with managing stress right yeah versus understanding, understanding stress. stress yeah and that that's a good example if we're interested in managing our stress we'll be meditating so we feel better right as an escape from stress but yeah. escaping from stress then leaves you no ability to understand it is it right you can't understand something that you're trying to escape from so we're not trying to escape stress. We're just, we just, and it, just want to understand it. And where does stress arise? It arises in eye making. It's not a, it's not a complicated thing for a human being to understand stress. And it's a lot to suit to the two arrows. As a consequence of having a human life, there's going to be stress. But I don't have to stick that second arrow by insisting that something be different. And it always causes stress, doesn't it? Because it's not reality. Anytime I think that this moment should be different, I've lost my mind because it can't be different. Here it is. This is the moment. How could it be any different? It's what is occurring. So what are we talking about? Radical acceptance rooted in the cessation that I'm making. It's so important that you recognize the jhanas. Saying if you're getting attached to this like joyful feeling, yeah, keep going. Yeah. Deepening your concentration. Yeah, that's a good point. Because if you if you get stuck on feeling joyful, you're stuck in the second level of, of jhana, second mm -hmm. level of meditative absorption. Mm -hmm. And as the Buddha told Sariputta, there's still further to go. You know, there's still further to go. And how do we know when we've got when we've got there, gotten there, when we've arrived? Mm -hmm. Because we have that balance, that equanimity. We understand that what's going on outside of us has nothing to do with us, meaning we don't take it personal. And we all know that. I, I, Zach, I would bet you've had a, a, a feeling of that, an understanding of where we're going, right? And, where we're going in this discussion? Or? Well, in general, with Dhamma practice. Yeah, I think I'm getting an understanding. 
Yeah, and I think all of us have had that um, that feeling of understanding what the Dhamma is all about, understanding how we contribute to our own stress and so that we can not do it anymore. The Buddha continues, the fool seeks reputation and undeserved honor among monks, nuns, and householders. Through desire, greed, and continued eye-making, the fool thinks, let monks, nuns, and householders know that great works are done by me. Let them follow me as their savior. Who would ever want to be savior? Folks, think about it. Rough job, isn't it? I'm your savior. And it's an impossible job, too, especially when you have that, uh, when you're, you're, you've attached yourself to that idea that I'm the savior. And you've got a tough life ahead of you, no matter how good you are. But we're not saviors here, are we? We just help each other to understand our own humanity. The fool seeks, wor seeks worldly gain. The wise seek heartwood. Heartwood is always a reference to the, to the Eightfold Path. Through right view, the disciple abandons worldly entanglements and develops release from all views, ignorant of four noble truths. One more time. The fool seeks worldly gain. The wise seek heartwood. Through right view, the disciple abandons worldly entanglements and develops release from all views, ignorant of four noble truths. All views ignorant of four noble truths. That's today's sutta, today's class. Uh, Brian, how are you tonight? Good, my friend. How are you? I'm good. Um, just felt and heard the wise restraint coming through this one again with the the solitary path right and it's the same with the wise association so the the split between ignorance and wisdom and, and how that plays out in our action um and the choices that we can make moment by moment so thank you thank you brian <laughs> Hello, Jane. Hello, John. Thank you for the teaching. I have nothing to add. I'm just grateful to be here. So thank you. I am too. I'm glad you're here too. Good evening, Deborah. Thank you for the teaching. I as well, noble silence. Uh, I always like when I leave you speechless. Thanks, <laughs> Deborah. Hello, Jeff. Hello, John. Hello, everybody. Um, yeah, I'm, I, uh, my mind turns to thinking about the condition of foolishness, and it's kind of a universal starting point, is it not? Yeah, and, when you can uh, acknowledge it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, the conundrum, the problem is that everybody starts out thinking, or not, at least not realizing how foolish they might be at some point in time. I think it's safe to say most people at some point in time think of themselves as wise. I know, I know when I was 20 years old, I pretty much knew everything. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I've gotten stupider in my old age. Yeah, we do that. Um, and I, I, I have a quote that comes to mind, something I, I don't remember who said it. I don't know if I've got it exactly right, but it, uh, we have the problem of coming to terms with our ignorance 
in its limited perspective, occupying the perspective with its limits. Oh. And it, it's, it's kind of the conundrum, and I'm not sure exactly what it is that gets us past that. Maybe you can... Well, I think that that's the, the brilliant of Siddhartha Gautama, isn't it? That he it, it is the eightfold path that gets us past that. The, the, the eightfold path is a limiting path that provides uh, guardrails so that we don't go too far this way or that way and just stay focused on recognizing and abandoning eye making. You know, and that's that's the that's the the the, the recognition of my own ignorance in not necessarily a four noble truth, but just recognizing that what I've, what I've been doing, the way I've been living, et cetera, et cetera, is not working within the right context is the, the dawn of wisdom, isn't it? But it has to be in the right context. Yeah. You get tired of bumping your head on it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with, with me, it was the next practice, you know, the, the next teacher, the next, you know, the next whatever. Which was really not much different than than when I was drinking and drugging. It was always, you know, uh, vodka hasn't isn't working for me lately. So let me switch to wine. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that worked about as well as the vodka did. But it, it was always it's something. If I could change something, then you know that's good. But nothing was changing internally until yeah. I came. And not, all the all the nothing changed in my thinking until I came to the Dhamma, and so. I mean, I don't know that there's not something else out there that that might do the same thing or do something more significant, but this is what worked for me, you know. And, and now that we see it, it works for each other too. Uh, and it, the the wisdom that we gain is nothing um, superhuman, and yet it's the most important thing I think we can develop is understanding what it means to be a human being, because that's what we are, and that's you know the the Dhatuva Banga Sutta teaches us that's all we ever are, no matter what we acquire, we're, we're just human beings. But that word just, to me, is just enough, you know. Right. It wasn't until I came to the Dhamma that I, that, you know, I'm good enough for me. And I am. And up until then, I wasn't. You know, I always had to be something different and make sure other people didn't see me as I, as I thought I was, you know, self-loathing. But this is I am, you know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the savior. I'm this great guy. I'm the big businessman with a brand new car yeah so thank you john thank you jeff it's so important john the, the yeah. foolishness Here's david when you start realizing because that's where wise investigation yeah like it doesn't just come because you sit and you're here and there's this like magical moment where going to this spot where wisdom yeah that it does take that like serious concerted effort investigating why you're slipping back into foolishness yeah and then wisdom and then you can start really digging deeper into like those those gnawing eye making yeah you, you just haven't really you know Peel back. Yeah. And I think that's where, like, someone like Ananda, you know, you gotta keep practicing and investigating. And, you know, uh, again, it's, it does not come by some magical, like, 
attendance. Yeah, yeah. It helped us see, go. You know, dude always said that come and see for yourself, which meant you got to come and see for yourself. You got to do the work yourself. But if you can do that, and again, there's nothing um, that requires superhuman skills to de develop the Dhamma. Any human being can do it, but you got to do it. You got to do it yourself. And that, that's the, that's kind of the catching point for people. People, including myself, I like the idea that I could just show up in the right practice, wearing the right clothes with the right friends, and I was good to go. But it wasn't, and it can't be, right? Because I'm, I'm not learning anything. And what I've learned is what it means to be a human being, which is, you know, it's just this, you know? And it, I mean, and that's enough for me because it, it, I'd be out of my mind if it wasn't, right? Because this is it. This is what I am. That's what you are. And that's all you'll ever be. And that's, that's enough to have a human life. What are we doing here? You know, is it, is it uh, you know, 75, 80 years of acquisition or is it 75 or 80 years of a calm, peaceful mind or whatever we can, however we can come to the Dhamma? You know, what, what, what do we really want out of it? And if what you want out of life is to be the, you know, the, the richest so-and-so on, on the East Coast, go for it. But if, if what you want is to understand what it means to be a human being and to live with a mind of equanimity, a mind of calm, no matter what's occurring, go for that. I would say the latter is much more valuable than anything, any other external acquisition. And they're not mutually exclusive either. You could have a common peaceful mind and still have a lot of other things out there, but you might, you might not want to manage them after a certain point. Anything else, David? Zach, do you mind being on camera? And you don't have to be. Um, I don't have anything to add today. Okay. Really to Can I put you on camera anyway? Sure. No. <laughs> Wait, here, yeah, meet Zach. Here's that. Hello, Zach. Glad you joined us. Here's Laura. I was just wondering if you could just talk a little bit about uh, the innate potential that was uh, that you were speaking about, or the Buddha was speaking about, um, that you translated. Yeah. Um, I just like that part about obscuring our own innate potential kind of with these layers of illusion, illusional yeah. thinking. But in this context, can you describe this innate potential? Yeah, so that, well, let me, what obscures the innate potential is simply put as self-loathing thinking that we need to be more than we are. Um, the innate potential is who and what I am as a human mm -hmm. being. But to really be a, a um, what was it, Abraham Maslow used to call it a, 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 I can't think of the word. Hierarchy of needs? No, he had a different, a different I actualized. Oh, right. He was part yeah. of that self-actualization yeah. movement in the early 60s. So his actualization was really selfing. It was kind of constant eye making. I mean, the guy was brilliant, but mm -hmm. you know, he didn't understand the Dhamma. So my actualization is to learn what it means to be a human being, which I didn't learn. You know, you think you'd learn this somehow out there, but I didn't learn it until I read some of the suttas. And then really specifically, it was the Datu Vibhanga Sutta where the Buddha teaches that I'm a six property person, period. No matter what I want to pile on myself, you know, riches and notoriety and whatever else it might be, brand new cars. It, I cannot add anything to the six property person from birth to death on that. Mm -hmm. But from birth to death, I get to live any life that I want to live 
And now what I'd like to live is a life of calm. And so, and you've heard me say it often, this moment is the most meaningful moment I've ever had in my life, including driving off that new car lot. Why? Because I'm present for it. And so human living a human life and understanding what it means is its own reward because this is it, you know, and you realize it. And so the, the innate goodness or the innate uh, human nature is part of every human being. It's what, it's what drove Siddhartha Gautama um, to keep going. It's what he described in the Gara Sutta. It's what had him leave Alarakalama and Udeka Ramaputta because they were teaching him something that was completely conceptual and did not lead to him understanding what, what, I mean, what he wanted to understand. What does it mean to, to be this? Mm-hmm. You know, what does it mean to be a human being with all the suffering that goes along with it? He wasn't, he wasn't discounting that. You know, his sickness, aging, and death is still there. Okay, but what does it mean? Remember, he grew up as a, 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 the king's son. He could have stayed in the kingdom and had just lavish riches and power his whole life. But he left at 29 because that wasn't good enough. He knew that there was something missing in his life. And the legend is, you know, we don't know how true it is, but he left the palace grounds at night on on his horse, Chanda. I like Chanda means skillful desire. Um, And he saw a corpse and he saw people arguing in the the town square about money and all, all this other things. He said, this is the first time he saw that. He said, this is crazy too. So he left this fabulous wealth, but then he was out in the secular wards and world and that, that wasn't it either. And then he spent the next six years trying to figure out what it means to be a human being because that's what he was wanting to understand. And he figured it out. I mean, to me, that's, that's probably the most astonishing thing that I've ever come across. And it's easy for us to practice a Dhamma because somebody else, you know, figured it out for us. But this guy figured it out on his own. And what he came up with is just this, you know, that we are, having a human life is, needs no explanation or justification, right? You are, you have your own innate goodness as a human being, I do too. That's it. That's as far as we have to go. We you go, well, what about these? You know, when I was younger, I did this or, you know, I, I had these tendencies. Well, okay. Here's the framework of the Eightfold Path. If those tendencies, if those that conditioned thinking doesn't fit within these, these guardrails, this framework, what do you do? You let it go. That's all. And yeah. what you're uncovering <clears throat> is your innate goodness. What's left? I, I wouldn't even call it innate goodness. I would call it innate humanness. Yeah. <laughs> You know, if, if you're talking about innate goodness, you have to somehow find out more what, what about the innate badness. Yeah, know? no, you're right. Yeah, there's just this innate humanness. You know, and once the dross is passed right. off, innate. it's cast aside, what's left? You know? mm-hmm. John, what's a six-pointed person? Uh, the, in the Dr. Vibhanga Sutta, the, the Buddha teaches that everybody, every human being is made up of six properties, a six-property person. The four elements, right? Earth, wind, fire, and water, right? Easy to understand. That's what makes us makes us up and makes up everything in the universe, as far as we know. The fifth property of the space, you know, the, the, this these four elements need a space property in order to animate. And also the space property, even the Buddha talks about the space property would be 
the way that you consume food and it goes through a tube into your intestines and it passes through, that's a space property. There's a certain amount of space there. The sixth property is consciousness, but not consciousness as it's often taught as some uh, grand cosmic consciousness or something that we should aspire to, a unity consciousness. It's just consciousness, it's human thinking. And if that thinking is rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths, it's likely only going to produce stress and distraction for our lives. But if that thinking is geared towards and resting in reality of the Four Noble Truths, then that's a liberated human being. And no matter what occurs for that human being, that their mind will remain calm and at peace. So they'll, they'll be no longer contributing to their own conflict by wanting themselves or the world to be different. And they'll no longer be contributing to the conflict in the world. And the world has enough conflict, doesn't it? Did I answer your question? Yes, it did. If uh, the Datu Vibhanga Sutta is spelled D-H-A-T-U-D-I-B-H-A-N-G-A, and you can look it up on the website, or you can send me an email saying, I can't remember that name. Probably do that. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Here's Rob. Thank you, Laura. Um, I think I'm good. I just love hearing these, these uh, Dalva Pada Suttas. I know. Just, uh, <clears throat> more and more every time, right? Yeah. I feel that way, in, too. In the beginning, I, I found them disjointed, but they're not. They're just a collection of, of uh, like like-minded uh, sayings yeah and the, the poetry in them is just wonderful yeah and one one chapter feeds the next chapter right. and the next chapter this one's about fools and food <laughs> yeah that's right yeah thank you Rob. well all right that was a a quick class but that's okay we can we can go home early tonight uh any other questions or comments We'll finish with meta as we always do. So I have a question about how how you came to I forget the word you're using, but refine the text. That, um, that process. So I got to the point in my um, modern Buddhist practice. So this was a sincere practice for many many years. Um, but I was getting to the point where I was just getting more frustrated, more confused, and I, and I did everything there is out there um, within reason. Um, but I also had this thought that I believe that a human being had awakened. And I believe that if a human being had awakened, he wouldn't have taught something that other human beings couldn't understand. Because up until, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a fairly intelligent person. And up until then, despite years and years of study, and like I said, thousands and thousands of dollars, I didn't know what I was doing, even though I was doing a lot of things that were rote. Um, and I said, well, you know, let me just look at the suttas and see what I can figure out. Now, and I didn't really read them. In, in modern Buddhism, the sutta pitaka is almost 100% discounted. You'll hear later developed um, sutras. That's why I make the, difference, the distinction between suttas and sutras like the Heart Sutra, the Lotus Sutra, the Diamond Sutra, the Platform Sutra. Those are things that develop way after the Buddha's death. And most of modern Buddhism is based on those four sutras, or none at all. When I started looking at the Sutta Pitaka, I was still pretty confused, but I started looking for, I understood a little bit about how to investigate something, and that if there's a lot of material, to look for a common thread, and that way you might start piecing some things together. 
So that's what I started looking for. What's the common thread? What's the common thread here? And then I read the Paticca Samuppada Sutta, the Sutta on the Dependent Origination. And that started opening up my eyes a little bit. And then I read the Sakavabhanga Sutta, uh, the analysis of the Four Noble Truths, and that brought everything together. And so now I had the context, I, and that, that was the thread, um, Dependent Origination and the Four Noble Truths were the thread that really is in every sutta. Um, and that started making sense to me. And then I started looking at other suttas and just stripping away the magic and the, mis the mysticism because they, they couldn't be, um, uh, they couldn't be reconciled. Uh, magical thinking, mystical thinking couldn't be reconciled with dependent origination and four noble truths. So that started giving me the license to say, okay, you know, let me strip this away and see what I have. And when I stripped that away and looked at what I have, like this was this was something that made sense. And you know, then I just uh, in the beginning I was and it could be practiced. What's that? And it could be practiced. yeah, it was it was something that I could teach and that other people could practice. And so uh, in the beginning, what I was doing was uh, basically restoring two suttas a week, which is a lot of work, but then teaching those suttas here in class, mm -hmm. um, and that. You know, over time it built up to, I think there's about 360 suttas on the website that now form our practice. But that's how it was. It was out of frustration and confusion. And not to, not to elevate myself to Siddhartha Gautama's understanding, but it was basically what he went through too. He was completely frustrated. And at the end of that six years of study, he said, the hell with all of it. Well, I don't know if you use that word that I was and the hell with all of this. And he says, I'm just going to sit quietly. I'm going to get rid of all that stuff. There's a little you know, legend that goes along with that. Um, but he said, you know, I'm just going to strip it all away and just see what's left. And what he was left with was the Eightfold Path. What do you think happened? And what was the nature of the evolution of the, the Buddhism that allowed all of that magical thinking to... You know, I, I really it's, 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 it's a natural human thing, right? Yeah, People a, do that. It's to easier to believe in magic than to deal <clears throat> with the realities of your own mind. It's it's yeah. just that, and, and it happens all the time. It happens before the Buddha. It happens after him. It's happening now. Yeah. <clears throat> there was a lot of of. Even during the Buddha's time, there were people that the the Buddha, the predominant spiritual teachings was uh, based on the Vedas and the Upanishads, the precursor to modern Hinduism. And so that uh, they're really elaborately magical and mystical. And so even people that came to the Buddha wanted to incorporate what they had also learned. And there was even some friction during the, you know, the, the original Sangha. And then once the Buddha passed, that notion of making Adding, the Buddha had, a, had a, a great reputation at the time, so everybody wanted to be a Buddhist, but they still wanted to incorporate what they believed was spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. And so, again, as soon as the Buddha passed, there were groups that were trying to add on to the Buddha. Uh, they, they wanted to elevate the Buddha up to a god, and he was one god among endless gods, which is still taught today. But that's just because that, that's what they were practicing. And so modern Buddhism as its practice has more akin to, to modern Hinduism than it does to what the Buddha actually taught. 
but again, as Ram said, it's just kind of human nature, you know. Um, if you look at, at the article I have on the website on the Pali Canon, it goes into the history of how different groups uh, over time uh, took to massaging the, the, the sutta, the suttas or the Buddhist teachings to be what they want. And then later on, there were these other teachers like Wee Ning and, and uh, uh, Dogen uh, Nagarjuna. I uh, can't remember who wrote. Oh, yeah, Wee Ning wrote the Platform Sutra that wrote these things called sutras. Uh, and the Heart Sutra, the Lotus Sutra, and the Platform Sutra all say the Four Noble Truths are a lot of nonsense in the sutras. sutras. But these became the standard sutras for most of modern Buddhism. And you get into Tibetan Buddhism has more of an influence from a religion called Bon, B-O-N, which is still practiced today, and even Jainism, which is still practiced today. So they, and, and then it was um, with each culture that it moved through, it was adapted even further. So Zen developed through um, uh, Chinese and then Japanese influences, which were rooted in Confucianism and a few other things that all changed the, what the Buddha taught to fit what the culture wanted rather than you know, what, what the Buddha actually taught. But it, it's understandable. You know? um, there's a lot of people that think I'm full of hooey too for what I've done. I, I, get, I get at least one email a week that's rather unpleasant. But you know, I understand that what the people take it as a challenge to what their belief is. You know? So you know, I started practicing what I found worked for me. And uh, again, the, young lady next door asked me to start teaching it and here we are you know. thank you for going on that journey yeah <laughs> thank you for asking me yeah uh if poly you could look on the website too or just send me an email i'll send you the link I'll any other the other one i can that <laughs> the six property person any other questions or comments we'll finish with meta as we always do and this is a slightly restored or, or, or newer version. This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demand, demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. They're always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so will a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from, from drowsiness, 
They sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision and being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Peace. Thank you, John. See y'all. Bye. Bye, all. Retreat registration in a day or two. Yay! Yay! Can't wait. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.